Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today's no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And welcome to the show, Ed Rogan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. So, Ed, we both work in the Philadelphia market. We've done an awful lot of infill development in the market. And what I thought would make sense for us to focus on, because Philly, like many cities all over America, has those fringe neighborhoods, those areas where you go a few blocks too far, you're in the hood. And this is an area where you've been specializing for a number of years. So why don't you give us a little bit of your backstory and how you got into this particular specialty? Sure. Penn Capital. Uh, we started back in 2017. And we actually didn't get our first deal done until 2018, but we were focusing on markets in the South and Southeast, mainly for garden style type of apartments. So my partner and I, we had done some single family projects individually before we started Penn Capital and found that, you know, our friends and family and people wanted to get involved. So we, we decided to come together and build a platform so that investors could, you know, invest in the deals passively with us, which opened up the opportunity to get into larger scale projects. And to get started, especially, you know, where we were at in 2017, the market was hot. There was a lot of players, uh, you know, that already had been doing these types of deals that we wanted to do. So it was difficult for us to get involved and, and uh, get our offers accepted. So we decided to kind of pivot our strategy a little bit from the, the stabilized value add type of uh, acquisition and look at more of the redevelopment level acquisition. So projects that were distressed, whether that be management distress or fund level distress or debt distress, maturity risk. So we, we found that there was more opportunities available to us, especially in garden style apartments that were suburbs rather than infill redevelopment. And we selected a handful of markets based on job growth and some other demographic factors and uh, found our first deal, which was in Alvin, Texas, which was slightly outside of Houston. That neighborhood was interesting for us because a lot of people were afraid if there's another market level below tertiary, I think Alvin would probably would fall into that level uh, because it's, it's part of the Houston MSA, but it's about 10 miles from, the, from Houston's outer loop. So it's, it's kind of a rural slash suburban neighborhood. However, there were existing, there, there were about five or 10 existing apartment complexes and they haven't built anything in the previous 10 years. So the demand there was solid. Everybody was, all the properties there were operating at 90 plus percent occupancy. And what we found that the fact that there was so much going on in Houston, so much new construction, but a lot of the new communities that were developing and growing were in South Houston, for example, Pearland, which was about five miles, you know, five to seven miles from Alvin. And then also you had League City to, to, the, to the east of us, Texas City, and some of the other more affluent suburban markets that were in Southeast Houston. So we figured, you know, with the pricing increasing there, plus at the time, a lot of the downstream oil and gas economics were starting to really pick up. So Dow had built a big chemical production facility, and there was a lot of oil refineries there in Southeast. So we decided that 
being in Brazoria County, that's where our play would be. The demand was already solid in Alvin, but we thought at the time it was going to pick up and grow as more people were priced out of Pearland and League City. Uh, so it ended up, we were ended up being correct on our assumptions there because we've been lucky to maintain 93, 94% occupancy with the ability to raise rents, you know, probably about $125 overall on renovated units. So from there, we thought this is a great opportunity, especially when there's a lot of competition for deals at premium prices in the major metros and in the, in the hot neighborhoods to find some of these sort of fringe markets that aren't necessarily, or, or I won't even call a market, but neighborhood that aren't necessarily popping out as, as highly attractive until you dig into them and find out how some of the economic is growth growing around you, how some of the demographics are growing. Um, within a couple mile radius and decided that that would be our strategies to where we can still get in and buy deals at a fairly discounted price and uh, still have the opportunity to, to add value. So fringe neighborhoods often mean different things to different people. Sometimes that's a euphemism for meaning it's a high crime area. For some, it means people are broke and they have no money. Uh, what does that term mean for you? And what is inve- what risks does investing in a fringe neighborhood bring? So to your first point, definitely, you know, high crime areas, but I'll get to that. I look at that in two ways. Also, you know, just, you know, a neighborhood that if it's, if it's within the major metro, if it's within where, where everything's going on um, and it's not kind of out on the outskirts, then it, it would fall into that fringe neighborhood, whereas it's, it's kind of uh, an area where there's been either economic problems or, or it's, had hot crime issues and, uh, you know, just kind of blight situations. We look at those areas again as if it's, if it's also on the outskirts in the suburb. So we, we, we definitely don't go into those neighborhoods if we don't see actual progress that we believe is going to be running through there. So if it's, you know, within the path of progress, that's when we start to get interested in it and we try to pick up on those types of trends early while the prices are still relatively lower. I love that. I love that. Well, certainly the southeast of Houston is one area that we've paid a lot of attention to and we don't have anything in that market right now. Uh, We're actually developing in the northwest, but uh, we've taken a look at properties in the southeast of Houston and I agree with your assessment that there is opportunity there there's strong employment, very strong employment, in fact, but the price points aren't very high. We often found that there was, like you said, not a lot of new product. I mean, think about communities like Beaumont. Not a lot of new products have been built in Beaumont in many, many years, yet they're almost full occupancy. Yep. And I think those kinds of neighborhoods like Beaumont, there's a very solid, you know, working class demographic there because you have so much blue-collar manufacturing plants, uh, chemical manufacturing, oil refineries, gas refineries, and also they had some uh, auto, or not automobile, but other manufacturing plants. So it's a great working-class neighborhood. So if you're looking at Class C, Class B type properties, there's tons of demand in those kinds of markets because it's, it's not really feasible to build brand new Class A ground-up development there. With those areas growing in population and households, you can get in at a reasonable price and still realize value add upside 
from the in-place economic chain of, of uh, work that's around there, the, all the job, the employment centers. And a lot of times, you know, we find that, especially in Houston right now, if you look at Houston right now with the oil and gas issue happening with, with the industry on the down cycle, in West Houston, over by West Chase is where a lot of the class A type of demographics reside. And you have a lot of oil and gas headquarters and white collar types of job center there. Now, they're getting hit pretty hard over there because with the, the, the loss in jobs that were tied to those you know, oil and gas headquarters and, and executive offices, we're not seeing that in some of the more blue collar working class neighborhoods. We're actually seeing, any, if anything, growth in demand. So the reason why we like working class is because the, the, the supply is restricted. You know, it's hard to build new working class housing unless it's considered affordable housing. And so if you can get into a market that's solid where the people are working and jobs are growing, then you, you can really do, do well. Well, jobs are the key because I know there's been an awful lot written about the 6,000 small independent oil and gas companies significant fraction of which at today's oil prices are expected to go insolvent. What that means is that a whole pile of debt's going to get written off and a bunch of companies are going to go bankrupt, but the oil is still going to be there. The ownership of those wells are going to change hands and those wells are still going to remain in production. So those people are still going to remain employed. They may have a new employer. It might be a bank that owns them. It might be, they might become employees of the bank, but those oil wells are still going to be producing. That's why we like the downstream centers too, because if anything, you know, when the price of oil is cheap, you know, right now the problem with the downstream is that there's not, not enough places to, to, to uh, store all the product. You know, they're having to store it offshore, you know, but as far as the refineries and the chemical manufacturing plants, you know, they're buying as much as they possibly can right now while the prices are, are low and the futures are low. So they're, if anything, having to increase production and increase uh, their, their employment count in order to, to increase their production levels to continue buying cheaper products. So that, you know, the, that's why we're not really seeing too much of a hit on the downstream side, which is where a lot of the blue-collar workers where, where are, which is a lot of east, southeast Texas or Houston. Even into Lake Charles, Louisiana, you know, is another strong market that's over by Houston there. Yeah, and we're, we're, we're actually very heavily invested in Lake Charles, Louisiana. We have a number of projects in that community, and we like it for the growth that it represents. Where we, another place where we do have assets uh, is in a town called, a uh, city called Huntsville, Alabama, Okay. which I don't know if you're familiar with Huntsville, but it's, it's kind of a tertiary market in northern Alabama, and it is uh, just south of Nashville, actually. It's just over the northern border of Alabama. Actually, very familiar with Huntsville. You've got now a couple of fairly big Japanese auto manufacturers that have come into town, so it's pretty strong employment growth. What I've noticed about Huntsville is, you know, it's a good workforce. It's a fairly educated workforce. used to be R&D centers for uh, both uh, military and radio uh, in years past. But what I'm seeing in Huntsville is that the dollar per square foot, the rental rates are still fairly low. They're around that dollar, dollar ten a square foot. And even though there hasn't been much new construction, and in fact, very low vacancy, 
it hasn't pushed rental prices up, which is one of the things you often expect to see in a market when it gets capacity constrained. You start to see new product coming into the market and you start to see prices coming up. And we haven't seen that in Huntsville. Yeah, that's um, you're, you're, you're 100% correct on that. We've done, dug in and done a ton of research on that market. And we found out that the reason why prices have been restrained there, there there's a couple of factors. The Huntsville market has opportunity there because what you're going to start seeing now is those, those prices start to rise. Because what we found going into Huntsville was there's very limited supply. There's a growing demographic and there's growing job center. However, I would say out of all the markets, you know, we've looked at and, and have done in-depth research, including Houston, there are a lot of mom and pop owners there. There's probably four or five owners that have owned in Houston for the past 20 year, years plus and um, have held those properties. And they probably own about 20% of the market share of garden style class B and C properties. And they have very little debt service, if any, a lot of these owners. And what happened is they have not really pushed rents and have not done anything besides deferred maintenance in a lot of those assets. So without having any debt service and with paying, pay, you know, with, with maintaining an occupancy above 90%, they haven't really had much of an incentive to go in and push rents. So when they bought their property 20 years ago, who knows, it's probably, you know, they probably paid 10 cents on the dollar compared to what it would be worth today. But now that new outside buyers are coming into the market, starting to do uh, the renovation turns, they're starting to see, you know, the rent, rents pick up. So I would say probably in about another year from now, you'll start to see that rent growth. But it's, it, you know, the market overall has about a $75,000, you know, median household income. Yet, you're right, the average market rent is down around 750, maybe 800. Uh, so their rent to income ratio is like 15%. It's really incredible. Whereas the rest of the, the country right now is teetering on, you know, 30 plus. So there's a lot of room for growth there. Places like Dallas, you can't get into anything right now, you know, less than 80,000 a door if it's stabilized. And the problem there is wages aren't growing fast enough to keep up with the rent growth. Because when you buy a class C property that was built in 1975, you know, for, for $100,000 a unit, you have to maintain, you know, at least a 3 4% annual rent growth, if that, maybe even more, to be able to, to pay your debt service and at least keep a 5% cash on cash distribution rate. In a market like Huntsville, where you have the research and develop second largest R&D center in the world or in the country, fourth in the world. You have 4,000 jobs coming in for the new Toyota factory. And then there's another 4,000 jobs coming in for the FBI headquarters that they're building. So it's only a matter of time until that demand pressure starts to put enough upward pressure on rents that we'll start seeing that growth. But yeah, I think it's about, a good year, year and a half maybe away till, till it really starts to, to show. 
I love it. Well, Ed, if folks want to learn a little bit more, if they want to get in touch, what's the best way? Uh, they can look us up on our website, pencapitalgroup.com. Our contact info is there, or they can reach out to me directly. My email is ed.rogan at pencapitalgroup.com. And that's pen with two ends. Terrific. Well, Ed, thanks for sharing the perspective on two very interesting markets, certainly the southeast of Houston and Huntsville, Alabama. And for the listeners at home, definitely reach out to Ed at Penn Capital, is it Penn Capital Group? Group, yep. Yep. At PennCapitalGroup.com. That's P-E-N-N CapitalGroup.com. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. And we'll talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.